so let's see. Did um, yeah, we could talk about. Uh, let's see, what was it? Healthcare. What was the other thing I said? UBI and immigration. Immigration. Yeah. Okay, so let me touch base with what because I'm trying to remember your position on say universal healthcare specifically. Were you for universal healthcare or against it? And by universal healthcare, I mean I don't specifically mean Medicare for all. I'm including like you know, the hybrid systems like France and Germany have and all that. Right. I So I would say that I would prefer a more free market system. Uh, so like anything in the direction of like alleviating free market system and basically the way the idea is to increase access through different measures. I'm, I'm more skeptical towards single payer for various or like just any sort of universal healthcare program for various reasons. And we can kind of discuss some of them. Mm-hmm. So like that's kind of like the main gist of it. Okay, so so are you saying you lean in the direction away from Germany slash France style yeah. hybrid? Or oh, okay. See, for me, the whole point of the universal system is that everybody is covered, and so it takes into account that at some point in time, everyone's going to get sick, whether they want to think about that now or not. Mm-hmm. And so, like, uh, I think it was. I can't remember, it was probably 10 years ago, 12 years ago, something like that. Ron Paul was running for president, and basically he was being interviewed uh, by someone, and they're like, but what if someone gets sick and they didn't have insurance? And I can't remember exactly how the questions and stuff went down. I could probably find the video, but anyway, he's basically, they were, they backed him into the corner until the point where he's like, well, guess they're going to have to be left to die, basically. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and and part of the issue with that, I think, is also just understanding the framework of healthcare that the U.S. works under right now, and it's that it's it's a necessity for one to have insurance. Yeah, um, and and part of the reason why is because there's so many various costs that have been that that, that have risen over the past hundred years or so, um, mm-hmm. and I think so. My my main issue isn't with like those like the like oh like we need to like. So a lot of times, like conservatives um, within within Congress will try to advocate for more competition, right, mm-hmm. amongst insurance companies. Oh, you should deregulate state lines so they compete mm-hmm. across. So you can have more insurance companies to drive down the cost. Actually, that goes far as oh, goes far enough because I think it, it's only like you're only hitting the 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 tip of the iceberg in a sense. Right. You're you're really trying to prune the leaves or the root problem in there. I think part of the root problem is that there's there are various different regulations, but also just the way that the markets have structured themselves. That I think, um, and the markets structuring themselves meaning that like there, it's been a reaction, right? Like when right. when government does one thing, the markets will adapt and react to that, right? Because the mar- markets are very 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 adaptive in that sense, uh, or maladaptive in one sense, right? That it will adapt for one area where it preserves a certain part of maybe uh, m- m- maybe right right. It'll react, but it'll react in a bad way at making it worse. Right, they'll they'll preserve them private margins or something like around those lines, and in, in in one sense, it makes the consumers worse off. So some of those things do happen, and so I think the focus for me, and I think what concerns me the most is how do we cut that off, right? How do we lower the actual the real cost of healthcare instead of limiting or making it more affordable? So I think right. I think I would say that my approach is a bit more different in that I think I want to actually reduce the real cost of healthcare, where a lot of the policies and candidates right now are trying to take care of the current problem. So like I so I think that this is mainly a philosophical, but also b partly about um, economic policy that isn't really focused in the present in that one sense. Mm-hmm. So that's and obviously like there's different like political feasibility questions with that. Um, and like there, I do think though there are some things that can be done even now that can um, lower the cost of healthcare. So some very very easy examples that I could think of is. Uh, making immigration a lot easier and and changing um, well this this isn't really necessarily easy but changing some of the requirements for how uh, for for immigration especially high school immigration one of the biggest issues with doctors with just medical um, healthcare in general is that there's consistent shortage of doctors um, and that's not by accident it's it's not because it's 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 not because oh the profession is just so prestigious and no one, no one goes in there but it's that there are real barriers that have been purposefully set up for various intentions, either for good intentions or for bad intentions, that have made it harder for people to qualify. Right, right. And this isn't my area of expertise, so, you know, tell me if I'm wrong or not. But one of the things that I was listening to 
on a podcast where they were mentioning that some of the regulations on procedures that, let's say, uh, the difference between like a doctor or a RN or all these other people, that some procedures that could be done well by someone like an RN or, you know, a you know, an assistant of some sort, they only let doctors do those procedures. And that inflates the costs because obviously doctors are going to cost more than those people. Not just that too. There's also different things that nurses can't do that have to be reserved to doctors, such as prescribing certain medication. And and, and it's true that nurses receive a lesser education, but if you actually look and you talk to doctors and you go to hospitals to see how it works, nurses are incredibly important. Like um, there's... You know that, and there's there's consistent stories of of nurses, including you know one of my old mentors, who berated doctors for making mistakes, for for not for not doing a procedure well, for not administering a drug properly. Mm. There's a lot of tacit knowledge in how to actually apply certain things that nurses do know, and there are certain procedures that maybe even nurses have been so experienced in this field of working so much in it that they could actually do it themselves. That could actually mm. just cost straight up with that, but. There are legal barriers with that that make it harder for those things. Right. I think part of the reason, part of the issue here is also that. So before, just to double check, so we both agree that they should do a little bit, a little bit of deregulation in that area, not necessarily eliminate, not necessarily eliminating the like regulation, but easing it at at least. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and part of that also is that when you when you raise the barrier of entry. Um, less people are going to get in and it creates a chokehold of supply. And this is exactly what's happened with, with the medical profession. And I mean, like this, it's not just that this has been happening for the past 20, 30, 40 years. This has been going on since the 1700s when some of the earliest physicians at that time had started to call for a more, a, a more stringent academic, um, or more stringent, um, control on how doctors are educated. And it was for good reasons. Like I'm not saying that it's wrong and it's that, you want to have higher quality healthcare providers because you're playing with people's lives, right? Right, exactly. Which is my, sorry if I I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was just going to say, you should make make the requirements sufficiently, you know, stringent in order to keep people safe, but not so stringent to where you're just going overboard. Like uh, an analogy might be like the airline industry, as far as like the, the freakouts from terrorism, like most of the stuff that you have to go through in order to get into the airport and get onto the airline is, isn't actually making anyone safer. All it's doing is driving up costs and making people have to wait longer and stuff like that. And so there's obviously a diminishing li- diminishing point of return. And like with, you know, safety on airlines, it seems like that's, we've gone well past that as far as healthcare goes too. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, and those were for good intentions, but I think the steps that were taken, which was essentially licensing and further steps of licensing Really, I, I I don't know if that was the right step of direction, and I'm and I'm still even now right. skeptical about that for various reasons. Uh, for m- medical licenses, as it's basically like currency, right? It's almost like um, being in New York and you have those golden taxi medallions because those don't get made anymore. But when you have that, you're allowed to be a legal taxi. Anything else that doesn't have that, that's a black market right there. Right, so there's right. all these various issues that come about with that, and it really really hits that spike. It's, it really starts. It really starts to climax and escalate around the 1900s when medical care becomes more professionalized due to various scientific advances that 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 have been made. Right. Um, and obviously, I think I think with certain um, certain free marketers, they would point to World War II as being one of the first catalysts of essentially artificially inflating uh, healthcare costs for various reasons. Um, and one of the things that started happening was essentially employer provided insurance with. And there are all, there are a whole, a whole host of issues that came with that, along with at that time the formation of a uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield um, that, that that came about, through, and, and they were essentially contracting almost um, pseudo monopolies in the health market, and all those things essentially helped raise the cost. And then came Medicare, Medicaid, and it's not to say that none of these policies are evil, or awful, or awful, but it's just that there are, there are trade offs that were made, and I think the electorate, or at least the government deemed those trade-offs to be worth it uh, in the short run, and it seems to be the case that they certainly were. Um, but in the long run, I, I think that's—I think there have been a lot of problems that have slowly started to catch up with us on that. That I, I do think there are there, there should be some necessary steps to be taken for that. I think also that you know 
when we talk about implementing healthcare like the NHS from Britain or France's healthcare or Germany's healthcare or Sweden's healthcare, um, and it's like not even like talking about the question of feasibility, right? We're talking about the question of how would it work in America? I think, I think for me, um, especially coming from an Asian background, uh, there is a particular culture in America that is very, very different from European culture, right? And that permeates in lifestyle. Right. And I think part of that, too, is that um, it's not just an issue of health, but also like health care, but also public health in general. Right. The foods that we consume, the things that are made in that, that are put in the high amounts of sugar, the high amounts of carbohydrates and a toleration of the Amer- American public for wanting to have these types of high sugary content products do lead to further health problems that can compound upon themselves and create a lot of different costs. Right. And so if one is to implement any sort of universal health care, and I think from my understanding, I think I think Britain's healthcare system will be a bit more problematic. I think Germany's healthcare system will, be, will probably be the best copy and paste model if you're going to try to actually put it into the framework of America. That'll probably be the best one. Germany seems to be Taiwan. doing everything better than everyone else right now. <laughs> right. and uh, Well, with the exception of Taiwan and Japan and Sweden, but Taiwan, Japan, and Sweden, there's, there's various different there's a lot of variation in how those countries are run and based on just different statistics of population and different different things that essentially uh, I don't think makes it possible in America for various different reasons. Um, and Right, and yeah. I'm usually looking at the bigger countries that are the most comparable to, to America. Obviously, you know, France is a completely different language, completely different culture, but culture, but there's more more in the same realm of comparing to America rather than uh, Taiwan or something like that. Not only is France massively more populous, and so, you know, it kind of attacks that part of the equation, but it's also, you know, it's a more similar culture. Two of the things I was going to mention before I forget about them. Um, mm-hmm. So as far as I, I can tell, making the universal part of universal healthcare, you either have to have a uh, universal mandate where everyone mm-hmm. has to get healthcare or... You simply build that into the, say, uh, the Medicare system in America. Anybody who doesn't have health care through their employer or some other means is automatically covered by Medicare through taxes and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And so would personally, I would I'd prefer the latter. I think that's one of the problems with Obamacare is it is it is kind of burdensome having to having to figure out how to maneuver your way into getting health care if you don't already get it with your employer. But with right. the medic having just Medicare that automatically covers anyone who doesn't get who doesn't already have health care, it seems to me that that would be the more efficient way to implement universe the universal aspect of healthcare in America. Not again, because that's my whole point is I'm not trying to get rid of, you know, public option or uh private options for healthcare. Mm-hmm. I just want to make sure everyone is covered to a certain level, no matter who you are, no matter anything else like that. So part of the issue with maintaining a private option is that eventually there will be a time of people opting out. And this this had a this has occurred in in, in, in other countries beforehand where even Taiwan, where when they were coming up with a healthcare system plan they essentially decide that no, you can't opt out, um, and, and and that's, I think, to me, um, having a private system of healthcare within America, along with a universal healthcare system, um, it, it, I don't, I'm not sure how that would turn out for, for very. Good how people. have you? Uh, again, I haven't, or again, you 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 probably studied certain aspects of this more than I have. Are you familiar with how Germany and France have dealt with that? Because again, they have both public and private aspects of their healthcare system. Everyone, everyone who doesn't get uh, healthcare through their employer or some other means is automatically covered by the government, right? So I don't recall how Jimmy dealt with it. I, I, I remember reading this beforehand, uh, so my memory is a bit short on that. But if I remember correctly with Germany, and probably someone, if, I, if anyone listens to this, they'll probably correct me on this because this is where I do not remember. But I think, mm-hmm. I'm not sure if, if the private opting out remains an issue right now, but one of the issues that you can mitigate with that um, yeah, I can't recall. I can't and of recall. course, Germany is the most populous country in Western Europe. And so to me, that it, that would uh, lead more credence to why their their version would probably be the the best one. Like you said, to, right. if we were going to copy and paste something to America, that there's, there, 
again, more a similar culture, not identical, obviously, but more similar, more populous, more alike in a lot of the same ways. But want to finish off our final final uh, remarks on healthcare and move on to uh, what were we going to do? UBI. Yeah, yeah. So I think one thing also with Germany is that if you're going to implement a universal healthcare system in that sense, it's going to have to trickle down to the healthcare education too. I think I think part. One thing that's very obvious is that compensation with doctors in Germany and various European countries are significantly lower than um, than American doctors. Right. And I would actually go further and say, like, even in a free market, American doctors are objectively overpaid. Um, that, that, right, that, right, right, right. And it's not because, oh, they don't deserve the pay or any of that sort, but it's because the education that brings the, the way that we've formatted our, our healthcare education for doctors and for healthcare providers is immensely costly. Right. It's extremely, extremely difficult or expensive to get a doctorate. <laughs> yeah. And it's just not, An MD. it's just not reasonable. And so if one was to, and so like for me who leans towards a free market system, that would want to be the, I mean, that would be one of the first things to know is, is how can we format the education that can lessen the trade-offs of this, that can decrease the cost of healthcare providers, but also provide ample education because at some point, right. And it's not that, and it's not that the quality doesn't matter, but it's that at some point when you raise the quality, there comes diminishing, there comes with diminishing marginal utility, right? right? There comes with diminishing marginal benefit. Like a lot of diminishing yeah. return. Right. And now, and now the, the marginal costs will exceed the benefits that are, that are being gained from that. And I do think we are at a point where it seems like the benefits of all the education that we pour into um, these doctors with immense human capital that come out with these immense skills, I do think that 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 the benefits um, are, are 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 essentially outweighed by the cost. Um, and I think a solution for that would be to have additional specialization and additional separation in different branches of healthcare and different tasks that would essentially, you know, divide that labor and essentially right, right. make the process a lot cheaper. But that remains to be seen. There's a lot of barriers with that. I mean, the AMA does not want that whatsoever. Uh, right. There's a condition of them. Wait, of say them. that again, last part again. The AMA. Uh, the oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, the, the, I thought you they, said Andrew Yang there for a minute. I was like, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> I don't remember that. <laughs> well, the AMA has will probably not be for this for various political reasons. There's a lot of issues with, I mean, that would essentially, that would really, that would cause an erosion of the prestige of, of being a doctor. And, but, but, but I think, you know, I, right, exactly. And being in it for the prestige shouldn't be the reason that you're in a, being a doctor in the first place. It should be to help people while earning a reasonable income. But Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. All right. So we can move on to the next topic then UBI. So I'm not, I don't know how much you have uh, studied it or how much, and of course, every, implementation is different because Andrew Yang's freedom dividend is not the same as like mm -hmm. Milton Friedman's not quite so universal, but basically a similar, you know, the negative in, um, uh, income tax, negative income tax, tax return. Negative income tax yeah. So what's your opinion on, uh, you know, on UBI? So I'm a lot more ambivalent about UBI. I, I think Yang's proposal was a lot more reasonable and that he was essentially doing like if you want to keep your benefits, then you won't get the UBI. But if you want to have the UBI, well, then you have to exchange that for the benefits that you receive. Right, exactly. And, what, and in most yeah. cases, he said that most pe the, the UBI is going to be more than the benefits they're getting, and so that's going to, you know, take out a large portion of the people on welfare. And so there's you know, there's doesn't need to be nearly as much of a bureaucracy for just mailing checks out to people compared to you know, having to verify whether someone's income is this high so that they can get this amount of food stamps or, you know, something to that effect. So replacing a lot of that with Andrew Yang's version of the UBI seems pretty beneficial. Yeah. And, and that is definitely something that I'm, you know, I, I, if, if cutting off welfare and exchanging that with a universal basic income, I think that would actually be a better proposal. And I think part of the reason why is because you're just giving direct, I mean, you're directly giving cash. Right, you're not you're not going through and organizing all these ridiculous bureaucratic networks of benefits of how these things would be received, right? Where you have these food stamps, where you have these different things, and you have to go to different avenues to actually receive those benefits. But instead, you give them straight cash, right? And and you know, just just per regular economic assumptions, is that human beings are rational, and that you know, 
<laughs> well, that, that's where my uh, psychology background would uh, would disagree with. That humans are basically basically rational, or the the ration, rationality that uh, economics professors are thinking of is a different rationality than uh, psychology. Because in psychology, there's a whole laundry list of cognitive errors and biases that cause people to make the wrong decisions. That or and just the fact that they humans very much they're focused on the near-term immediate goals more so than long-term stuff that could happen. They're like, well, I could think about that, but I, I don't want to worry about that now. And so there's, sorry, I didn't, again, I didn't mean to cut you off, but that's kind of where, where the psychology background would uh, differ from the uh, economics one, I suppose. Right. And I guess it depends regarding the long-term, short-term uh, discussion. I think that's a very, that, that would be a very fascinating discussion for the future. But I think re- regardless of that, um, as for the economic assumption that people seek to, you know, maximize their utility or maximize their gains with cash that they have, um, I think we have better reason to trust people who receive universal basic income to use it, to use it well, to use it to their needs. Right. right? Oh, and to um, double check what you said, you said that you'd prefer them get rid of all welfare altogether and just have the UBI cover all that, which right and, oh, and, okay. and increase which and, would and differ from uh, Andrew Yang's proposal. Right, right. And, and that's where I differ with that. And you can also increase the income to like match in proportion with the welfare. Like, because even in that sense, like, because I mean, it's feasibility, right? Like, I think it's a lot more feasible for one to say, let's just convert the entire welfare system into just cash and liquidate it and just give it and just give people liquid cash versus, um, versus saying like, oh, just get rid of welfare in general and just, and, and, you know, and that's it, right? But so I think I think that would be a more reasonable approach versus like any other. If if there are libertarians who support this, I would say that this would probably be a better approach or a more optimistic approach. I think that would that that would I I would say that that would be better. And like maintaining current, you know, maintaining current budget expenditures, I would say that that money better well spent than than the current welfare system with all sorts of different inefficiencies. I mean, there's a lot of studies that's been done on this that shows that really. Um, whenever welfare benefits trickle down from, you know, from the treasury or from, from the government through the bureaucratic network down to the recipient, that they only get a very, very small fraction of that. I don't exactly remember the amount, but they don't even get the full dollar. They don't even get half the dollar, if I remember correctly. They, they just don't get that much. And, and that just seems to me to be wrong, right? right I mean, right. basic intuition tells me that that's wrong and that this system should be made to be more efficient where there are, you get rid of all these different intermediaries and you just hand out that cash, which I think is much, I mean, would be much better. And it also would cut off, cut off a lot of waste. Right. I think one thing that, that I, I'm still studying and still looking at is the benefits of, of UBI. Um, because there's a lot to be promised and there's a lot of with UBI program. But from my understanding, the causal, establishing the causal effects of the benefits and establishing the, the various um, policies and ways in which how you, the UBI benefits could trickle down, that that seems to be a topic that's still that's still being studied intensely. Uh, right. and- well, I mean, I think it's uh, fairly reasonable to say that if everybody got a thousand dollars on top of what they're getting right now, mental health is going to improve because simply financial stress is going to alleviate to some degree. Right. Right. And 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 and. and that could be a benefit, but my concern is more about the long-term, long-term benefits of that, which I, to me, that, that, that remains to be unknown. But I do know that there are some very, very, um, some vocal advocates for UBI amongst the libertarian free market circles. Right, which is one of the reasons why I thought it was so interesting, because there are a lot of people who are, Andrew Yang is very clearly on the left. I know that, or he's, he's center left for sure, but I know that I'm going to, there are, probably a million uh, comments in the comments section of people saying Andrew Yang's a right-wing neoliberal or something <laughs> something like that but anyway that's exactly one of the that's one of the things that I like to that I found interesting about the U- UBI is that both people on the left and right seem to you know be given it a, a pretty good you know consideration and uh, I don't know your, if you're familiar with them the neoliberal podcast I know the word neoliberal again may set a bunch of people off I'm by neoliberal I'm not talking about like complete laissez-faire free market yeah. individuals and by the neoliberal podcast are people that certainly from the U.S.'s perspective are on the left. They're a part of the, I can't remember the, the progressive something Institute, but anyway, 
Um, progressive um, the progressive, yeah, man, I, I, it just slips my mind right at the moment. But uh, they're they're one of the things that the host of that podcast likes to say is he's not necessarily pro UBI, but he's UBI, UBI curious. <laughs> right. You know, yeah. And, and I would consider myself in that, in that category. Um, but I, I am somewhat ambivalent about it in that I don't feel very strongly about it for various reasons, but I do have preferences as to how I would be implemented. And I think, I think doing, I mean, I think, like I said before, and just exchanging those benefits and just turning them into straight cash would be such a, I mean, really that's, I think that's, that would be much more efficient by, by, by a long shot. Right. Right. And of course, uh, at least again, Andrew Yang's version, it seems like he has a pretty good idea of how to pay for it. The amount that it would take over from the welfare, welfare bureaucracy and welfare payouts and stuff would, I think was six or 800 million. And then, uh, there's several other, uh, there was another, um, I'd have to double check the article that I read, but it was another $800 million through another way. And so basically the net cost of it, rather than being like $3 trillion or something like that, was only going to be $1.4 trillion. And then mm. just implementing the VAT tax would basically take care of that and actually probably like more than take care of it. And, uh, you know, the response for a lot of the people on the left would be that consumption tax like that disproportionately uh, affect the poor, which is true. But that's why the whole point of this isn't just to introduce a con- cons- consumption tax. The net, there would be a significant net benefit when combining it with the UBI because people are still going to be getting much more money than they're going to be spending extra on the things. And Andrew Yang pointed out that you can easily just um, make items that the poorest of uh, society uses more often exempt, like diapers or toilet paper mm-hmm. or, you know, various things like that. And so it could still be tailored even in that way. And so that's what, what I liked about it is it seemed like he had a pretty good idea of how to pay for the UBI. Yeah. And I, I, you know, when he was still running for president, I, I I consider him to be the best candidate out of all the candidates that are running. I I would, I would essentially hold him and Joe Jorgensen as essentially like my top two candidates. But unfortunately the democratic establishment decided to pick, um, (laughs) <laughs> Joe Biden, yeah. which to to be fair is better than Donald Trump, but Joe Biden was somewhere like I don't even think he was in the top five of of the Democrats that I was interested in. Yeah, but being better than Donald Trump is a very very low bar to pass. Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> Again, I can already see the comments stacking up in the comments section. <laughs> and I mean, let's not even mention about the whole sexual assault accusations with Joe Biden. Um, and I mean, part of my frustration was like a lot of the people on the left just. Not a lot. I don't know how many, but like there were, I mean, New York Times came with an op-ed and they were like, I believe in Tara Reid, the accuser of Joe Biden on sexual assault, but he's like, I'm still going to vote for him. And I was like, okay, um, there there seems to be some some hypocrisy going on here regarding the previous election with Donald Trump when he was straight up, you know, accused of sexual assault. Right. Absolutely. And, I mean, it, it just seems to me that it's, it, it's, it's such a lack of principles and it's such, and I mean, like, yes. All, every single criticism that I'm going to be putting out against people regarding, I mean, against, I mean, against Biden supporters regarding this issue, I would also just turn, I mean, I, I didn't vote for Trump. I was too young to vote for Trump, actually. But even if I was old enough, I would not have voted for him. Um, and that remains to be the case now, right? But like that, that cuts both ways, too. One of the things is the Democrat, it's not that necessarily you're supposed to believe guilty until proven innocent. It's just that it seems like the Democrats, assume Joe Biden's innocence before seeing any of the evidence. And then with Trump, it was the opposite. And in both cases, it should, uh, an accusation should be taken seriously and not automatically dismissed or accepted. It should just simply be taken seriously and investigated. And it shouldn't have to do with what party someone is. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, how are they going to handle this whole case with Tarvid accusing him? You know, I, I, I don't know, but it was, there was some irony sprinkled when certain lefties were very, very skeptical about the whole sexual assault, uh, the sexual assault um, accusation against Biden when essentially this was the exact same attitude the conservatives had when Trump was being accused multiple times and Kavanaugh was being accused multiple times where they would say right. stuff like, this is just perfect timing. Right. I mean, I mean, and 
she was just, I mean, they're just being dishonest. I mean, right. it, it reeks of, I mean, and the less behavior around, it reeks of Gloria Steinem whenever she essentially threw Monica Lewinsky under the bus to defend right, Clinton. Because, right. you know, for her, for, for what principles to be, to, to, to be grounded on feminist ideals, um, there's just a lot of irony in that. And, and you know, I, I find that to be just quite like ethic. I mean, just in terms of principles and just at least to be pretty disgraceful. Right, right. From my perspective, the the thing that I would say was at least slightly different with Joe Biden is that the accusation is a pretty, uh, like a description of the situation, like him, I can't, what was it, leaping onto someone in the elevator and, you know, just getting very uh, explicit. Yeah. And so the reason I would say it's at least slightly different from the Trump thing is that is unlike almost any other there's not a history of doing stuff to that level as far as Joe Biden there goes. There's, 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 you know, the, the kind of creeper, creeper, like sniffing people and stuff like that, but there's nothing that rises to that level. Whereas with Trump, uh, a lot of the accusations against him were perfectly in his history of behavior. I mean, I mean, it's funny because back when I used to, and this was a long time ago, but, but back when I used to actually follow the daily wire, you know, the Ben Shapiro, Ben Shapiro. Oh yeah. Um, before they went, they, um, you know, before they jumped onto the Trump train, they actually published an article where they were, they just recalled all of the, all of Trump dirt. And I mean, Ben Shapiro wrote it. I think I think he wrote it, but he basically like recalled um, the the incident where um, Trump was accused of raping his first wife, Ivana Trump. I mean, I mean, this stuff is not new. It's just right. right. And, and exactly. Were, so there's a whole history of it, or a history of s such accusations with Trump. Yeah, and so that, to me, is just beyond. I mean, the state of American politics is truly where it's at because, quote unquote, we the people really deserve it. Because people, I mean, the American electorate chose these people, elected these people, and because of that, they suffer for those consequences. And I, I mean, right. That's one of the things that kind of kind of irks me is everyone blames the two parties, and I'm like then why don't you vote for somebody else? <laughs> because right. the fact of the matter is, is yeah, the, the DNC is going to have its favorites and so is the RNC and they're going to, they're going to push money to try, you know, advertise and all this other sort of stuff. But when it comes down to it, they're not getting in there unless they get votes. And so it's just, I don't know, plays to the gullibility of the masses while also that they want something they'll complain about the two parties and yet they'll, they'll s stick to those two parties l with, with an iron grip. And, uh, it, it kind of reminds me of the, what is it like an 89% reelection rate for, for members of Congress. And yet, uh, something like a 12% approval rating or, or maybe like 20%. But in any, in any case, every, they, everyone thinks that Congress is terrible and yet everyone reelects the same congressman. And, and, once you start questioning these assumptions about, well, why do you have to keep voting for them? <clears throat> for the status quo. Uh, that's when they start making the same ridiculous, nonsensical arguments for why they have to maintain the current electorate, for why this person's the best option in this and this whatever. And, and I mean, yeah, to me, to me, it's just the political scene of America is utterly pathetic. Oh, right, and right. They deserve it. The American electorate deserves it for this. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. Well, uh, shall we move on to immigration? <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. So, so give me your uh, your perspective on immigration. Open borders. Oh, okay, <laughs> that's where it is. Of course, there's a that's one another one of the interesting crossroads where people pretty far to the left often agree with the libertarians who are still firmly on the right. Mm -hmm. um, Personally, you said open borders, correct? Yep. Which isn't no borders, which is one of the first things that people start to conflate knowingly or unknowingly about it. It's not no borders. Um, I'm assuming you're in favor of everyone who crosses the border still needs to be, you know, tallied up and accounted for and given a identification number or however they do that sort of stuff, correct? Right. Right. So that's simple common sense stuff. I'm... I don't, again, on, on this, I don't have a firm position other than that borders are not nearly open enough. I'm not sure 
where I would be at on a fully open border, I may completely agree with it, but I can s potentially see a level of, it's possible that there could be a level of immigration at which it overwhelms the ability to keep track of them. You know, to some degree, culture. And by culture, I don't mean like it in the right-wing sense and like trying to preserve uh, some specific religion or something like that. I'm just talking about like, you have to believe in freedom of religion or you should be believe in freedom of religion uh, if you're here. And if you get too many people who don't believe in freedom of religion, again, I don't think that's the case. I don't think we've ever come close to having a flood that big. And I don't right. think a flood that big would happen. I'm just basically trying to play devil's advocate in which I can see a situation in which that could be the case and in which completely open borders may be not necessarily the the thing with the best consequence. But I'm certainly pretty... I'm ve very open to the idea of open borders. Yeah. At least I'm playing devil's racist because <laughs> there's a lot of... There's a lot of... I mean... Really, this the struggle. I mean, and especially within the libertarian circles, the debates on immigration is always very, very heated for various reasons. Right, and, because know, like, a lot of the, a lot of libertarians are just Republicans who are calling themselves libertarians. <laughs> and obviously, obviously, like you, I mean, you kind of know my political viewpoints on that. So I'm, I, I, I mean, I would be considered an extreme libertarian. I mean, considered to be an analytical anarchist of that sort. Um, and amongst those, there's still a lot of hard debate on immigration. Particularly with understanding how to deal with, you know, oh, well, since the state exists, how are you going to deal with the borders, right? But I think I think the answer should continually, decisively be. Sorry, that was a notification, but oh, um, right. I think I think it should, the, should be decisively open borders. I think it should continue to be open borders for various reasons. I think, I mean, like economically, or sorry, go ahead. I mean, not just economically, but I think mirroring some of the stuff that you talked about with climate change, like it seems to me that the social, the the social scientific literature on this is pretty overwhelming. Um, the evidence for immigration right. benefiting, having a net benefit, is really, really hard to overturn. And and most people I mean, do assimilate by at least the second generation, if not the third. And so oh, the idea that 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 America is going to stop being America is doesn't make much sense. Right, it's not sensible, right? And, and I mean, the economic benefits are just all, I mean, so when you talk about, like, fiscal benefits, like, oh, well, what about the, the burden on the, you know, the public budget system, right, the public finance system, is that, well, it's, it, based on all the studies that's been done, it seems that there's evidence pointing towards that on a federal level, on a national level, immigrants would actually be a net benefit. They'd be a right. net benefit for public finance, <clears throat> but the benefit is negligible. So Especially... With stuff like uh, uh, social security, or I mean, of course, I want, I want to buy open borders and stuff like that. The whole point is to have make it so that they're considered legal, and so they would, in this scenario, be paying tax. But especially right now, uh, illegal immigrants are generally paying taxes in a lot of cases, and something yeah. I can't remember it's to the tune of several billion per year, and so that is actually helping keep social security afloat which has been drained for various stupid uh reasons over the decades but uh, and that's one of the things i heard about some liber from some libertarians to oppose borders based open borders based on the economics uh perspective is they were like well if they're officially legal now they do get to draw from social security i'm like yeah but they're also still now paying more social security tax or they're on average Ever, almost all of them are paying social security tax right now, and not and for it's just the fact that they're going to be younger and they're not going to be people that are retiring anytime soon for the most right. part that are coming over. And so even if they're eventually going to draw on social security, they're still helping us right now. And and I think for libertarians and I think for just people who object to open borders by saying, well, it you know it could overwhelm the welfare state, it could overwhelm social security. Uh, I think there's an immense lack of imagination there because there are various policies where we can, and I mean, we can, there are various policies that we can adapt to those circumstances. And right. it's they're going to be paying sales tax. It's not like right. the I mean, immigrants it, are uh, exempt from sales tax. They're going to be paying income tax and all that other sort of, you know, all those other sort of things. Right. And it's not like economists haven't come up with these different solutions. It's just that people don't listen to them. Right. right. Like they're really, really, 
really like just straightforward solution would just be, well, why don't you just put a visa for sale, right? You 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 allow people right. to purchase visas and you put a limited amount. I mean, you 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 put out like you raise the the visa cap by a hundred to two hundred, three hundred thousand, and you have people buy it, right? That essentially is is that that goes to I mean that all those benefits go to the government, right? They get to keep that money for various, you know, whatever they want to do with that. But not to mention that if people were to buy these social security and not social security, but there, there ends up being a self-selection effect for the people who are able to afford it, which means these people tend to be more decently well off, which means they tend to be higher skilled. Well, what does that mean? If you're higher skilled, you're going to earn more money. And when you earn more money, you're going to end up paying more taxes. Now, some egalitarians and some people may, may object to this by saying, well, this is just discriminating against the poor. And I would agree, right? That's just one of the many, many solutions that you can essentially divide into different stratas of how you want to deal with certain immigration that you can say, oh, well, instead of having these licensing, right? Like what I mentioned before with healthcare licensing, like doctor license, um, medical license and different high skill license, uh, licenses that one has to, uh, one has to obtain that like, instead of having these string, stringent regulations that prevent other high skill laborers from coming in, that you can essentially allow them to come in with just buying with visas, but you have a different policy or different system with lower skilled immigrants. One of the biggest issues is that when people say open borders, they just imagine like these hordes of low skilled Mexican workers. Right, because brand, which is, <laughs> it's just it's ridiculous for so many different reasons, not just not just like philosophically, but also ethically, but also just empirically. It's just not true. Yeah, because they don't all stay here. Just like before the 1960s legislation that kind of started this problem in the in the first place, they would come to America to work. They'd work and then they'd go back across the border home. And they half the problem now is that since they know that it's so hard to get across the border, they stay rather than going back and forth. Exactly. Right. And, and and so thinking about open borders isn't just about low skilled immigrants coming in. Right. And it's really ironic because I remember uh, there was a Ted Cruz ad that was on Texas. <laughs> ironic. Texas, but it was about this was during the 2016 election and it was it was about immigration. And he showed these well-dressed men and women with suits and with suits and luggages and suitcases just hopping across the river. And then you just hear uh, Ted Cruz's um, monologue. <laughs> and it was like, if, if, if these immigrants that are coming were journalists or were doctors or were lawyers, they would, they would immediately go and try to restrict these types of things. That was his whole thing. And it's like, yeah, you're right. So that's, and guess what? It's because they are. It's because they are restricted in the first place. So open the borders up for the high-skilled workers to come. Open them up because right. they will be the main contributors for you know various taxes but i don't even think like taxes should matter like to me that just seems to be again like i said beforehand like it's a federal it, it tends to be a federal net positive in terms of the, the, at the federal level but at the state and local um local government it tends to be a net negative but the immigrants net negative contributions are still negligible right right positive. exactly they're they're technically a net negative but not by enough of a margin to where it overwhelms the other benefits right and and it's just like it, it doesn't make sense i think one way to think about this is that when immigrants come across even though they're low skilled right and 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 public resources are poured into them with roads or schools whatever other nonsense that's going to try to amplify the costs right these are still initial investments of human capital and once the second generation comes they, they tend to be higher skilled and they tend to be more assimilated into the American population. Like these things don't just stay permanently. Like these these people don't just stay to be like, a, they don't remain to be a permanent drag on. Right, the exactly. Otherwise, like America would have never recovered from the multiple massive surges of immigration, the 1840s, 1880s, 19, you know, 10s, 20s. Like right. <laughs> we would have never recovered. And in reality, we only got stronger and stronger every time exactly and it's because immigrants are overall always beneficial to the economy almost always beneficial the most skeptical first of all if people are to go like are, are to go get the grain on this against the socio-scientific literature on this the only respectable scholar that is in this that is in the economic literature on this that is deep within the economic literature and is mm -hmm. an immigration skeptic is george borjas he's a conservative and he does not mm -hmm. like immigration. He doesn't like immigration. He prefers less immigration. But his own studies, his own studies and his own empirical work show that immigration tends to be a net benefit. And even if they are a net loss, it's a short-term loss that is mitigated in the long term. Right? right. His most famous study that he did was the Marriott Boatlift, when 
you know, when when, uh, when Castro released just decided to release a bunch of Cubans into Florida, there was there was according to his study like a seventeen percent decrease in, in, in wages for for low skilled uh, non high school graduates. Low skilled non low skilled non high school graduates seventeen percent, and that was in a short run. And even at that point, a lot of the econo- economists that read the study questioned his assumptions and how he categorized. Um, how he, he like he like had four different strata of oh low skill high school graduate low skill low skill high school dropout and a high skill uh, high school college graduate and high and, and like another category and it was like well, why don't you just do two categories high school and college because that's the standard way of measuring it and when you did the standard way right. of measuring the wage impacts there was there was no cost there was there was no decrease in that and if there was any decrease in terms of repeating the studies it was essentially negligible. In the short run, that it was, it just made little to no difference. Um, and so, like, really, the arguments, like when you read Heritage, who are talking about immigration, I mean, I don't even think Heritage is that. Uh, like, like <laughs> Heritage has a lot of problems, but the Heritage Econ Department and Econ Department, the Econ Research and Heritage is actually still top notch. That's just from me knowing some of the people that work in DC that are libertarian and conservative and work in the economic circles. And that's why that's what it's so respected in one sense. But I mean, unless you're going to talk about like a lot of those organizations that come up with these, these, this information about how oh, immigrants are, are, are a drag on the U S economy. They're kind of irrelevant. Like they just don't have the credentials. They don't have the data. And there's a over, I mean, the burden of proof is on them. They need to show how it's a cost. They need to have, a, they, they need to have overwhelming support. Right, a lot of conservatives have this habit of just citing one study from freaking. Uh, right. Air. Oh, yeah. That's one of the things that drives me the most crazy in any sort of st- subject that has anything to do with science or studies. Is I'm like, you don't take one study. You take the convergence of evidence. You look for meta analyses. You like, you don't just pick a handful. And you also need to have real peer reviewed journals and stuff like that. It's not a right. And <laughs> those made up pay to play ones. They do the exact same thing with immigration and crime. I remember there was a brief video of, uh, I don't know if you know him, Michael Knowles. He also works at Daily Wire. He's like a Catholic conservative. But he, familiar right off the bat. Yeah, he, he gave a talk at a university and he was like talking about how immigrants commit more, illegal immigrants commit more crimes. And this professor questioned him and this professor, this lady did not, was not, I mean, she's not immersed in the immigration literature, but he, he, re- he reiterated that he cited federal studies that showed that immigrants committed more crimes as if, there aren't any problems with federal studies. And it's it's like, again, in terms of crime, which we're not going beyond the realm of economics, the socio-scientific literature is still overwhelmingly on the side of immigrants, that they commit less crimes. Right. Because I, I researched the specific thing as far as uh, Germany goes, because one of the conservative talking points is, oh, look at Germany and France. They're they're getting Sharia law zones, and they're, they've got crime skyrocketing with all this, you know, flow flood of immigrants coming in and i looked into the stuff and i'm like no their their uh crime rate is actually increasing at a much slower rate than the amount of immigrants that are coming in which means that immigrants are actually committing less crimes than local born people and of course all those countries have lower crime rate than america anyway and like <laughs> even then, it's just not a good case like it's not a good argument against over wars when like when conservatives say the the mass the, the mass Syrian refugee crisis showed that open borders don't work. It's like no, it doesn't. I mean, why do you think? I mean, what is the difference between Syrian refugees and Mexican immigrants? It's You're like, what are you looking? What are you looking at? Because I've seen this stuff and it didn't say that. Word, Syrian refugee and Mexican immigrant or Chinese immigrant. Syrian refugees fled. They fled from Syria. Why? Because America's been bombing Syria. Because it's there's a civil war going on in Syria, and so guess what? They fled, and they're forced to flee because they don't want to die. Like this is just basic elementary distinction right. of categories that it, it's just it, it flies over. It just flies over their head on that, and it's just no. It's it's not true that this is a case of how open borders would work. It's it's actually not. It's the opposite. It's what happens when you have awful foreign policy that creates blowback. Right? It creates blowback and causes these various issues that trickles back to the original countries that intervened. Right. right? It's just, it's their, just not, their position yeah. on this is, like in a lot of areas, they're not actually concerned with where the best evidence points. They're, 
they have a value system behind this. They don't, they, they're trying to, they don't like foreigners is basically what it is. And so they're trying to think whatever they can to justify not liking, liking foreigners. Or there's a lot of situations in which everybody does it, obviously left and right, right. but. I can offhand think of a lot of right-wing situations. For example, sex education in schools. There's a big, robust amount of evidence showing that abstinence-only school districts, or districts that teach abstinence-only sex education, have way higher rates of STD transmission and teen pregnancy than the the school districts that teach comprehensive sex education. And so there is overwhelming evidence for this. Like, we pretty much know this for a fact, but because those on the far right have, they have a value that they're trying to preserve. They, and a, a bad value, they're, they're puritanical, terrified of, of sex. And so they, they want to force a policy that we know against all evidence is not a good policy because they have a, an emotional attachment to the issue rather than a consequentialist version, rather than you're like, okay, well, whether I want this to be the case or not, what is the case? And what's the best thing that we can do to get to the, the best outcome? And for people like me, the best outcome is fewer teen pregnancies and fewer STDs. For them, STDs are the natural consequence of, of engaging in sexual immorality. <laughs> right. It's, it's, it's obviously ridiculous. You know, as a Christian, obviously, like, that's, it's not preferable, right? It's just right, not, right. It doesn't look and I mean, there's, there's all sorts of issues in how conservative Christians try to implement, you know, biblical morality into law. There's all sorts of problems that I've, that I've had, that I've talked about with them, right? Like prostitution is one of the things that I think legalizing it, or not legalizing it, decriminalizing it, because I don't want, frankly, I, I don't like government legalizing things because it just gives more credit to tax and tax and regulated. <laughs> I mean, you already know my political disposition, but decriminalizing these things is much more preferable for various reasons, right? And I mean, there there is a certain... I mean, there there are certain ethics where, like, even if these things are wrong from a certain from a certain perspective or certain moral viewpoint, right. the issue I have does that does that grant you necessity to then regulate and to stop it? Right. They're like, I'm I don't want you to do that. Therefore, I'm going to make laws as if people aren't going to do that. And rather than I'm not going to do that, but I recognize that people are going to do this whether I want them to or not. And so I better create laws from that perspective. So it's like, obviously, there, there is, there still needs to, I mean, there still is a leap, whether or not the Christian is right, there still is a leap from normative ethics into actual policy. And that remains to be a continuing challenge. But even right. like going back to immigration and some of the crime stuff is like, when people, people like Michael Knowles, because of this like federal studies, uh, and this is just like a quick, quick breakdown of the data as to why citing federal studies is not a knockdown in terms of crime rates. Right. Um, the federal government, enforces immigration law and border patrol is directly funded by the government right and so because of that federal prisons tend to have a higher population of illegal immigrants that that means that there is already a self selection right by right here. exactly these illegal immigrants <clears throat> well lo and behold if you find if you go into prison you're going to find criminals Right. It's just this is a self-selection. This is not a random distribution. Of, right, of, right. Of, 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 this is just not a proper way of studying it. But not just that. Um, federal prison, uh, uh, the federal prison population is less than 10 percent of the national prison population. The majority of prison populations are in states. Like not right. only is it there's self-selection going on, but there's also the different biases at play. There's all different different. Um, there's different omitted variable biases at, at play. And I mean straight off the bat, like, the sample size is already trash, right? So, like, people who cite federal studies, I mean, it's just it's just not. It's There's too many problems with that for that to actually work. And so, and that's part of the reason why people have continued to push for state prisons to study and release these data on policies. Um, the only state that actually works with the federal government on this is Texas, and, and uh, Alex Norwasta... That's surprising. Yeah. I mean, and Alex Norwasta and David Beer... Uh, <laughs> My Cato Institute did a did a comprehensive study, which I actually have the I have the paper copy of the study. When I, <laughs> yeah, I got to meet them last year. Um, no, I and that breaking down data shows. Oh, guess what? Legal and illegal immigrants commit more rates. The only state that we have that has, that has a complete liberty to look at the immigration data shows that both legal and illegal immigrants commit lower rates of crime. 
which is not surprising because that's just always been the case. <laughs> and like, again, looking at certain issues, it's like when people say, oh, well, if you open the borders, it's going to just flood. Or it's going to flood just just this brown wave, right? It's it's so ridiculous with the time fingers. <laughs> yeah. To no end, right? That's um, the first time but, I've never heard brown wave before. That's, that's an invasion. Right? They say that with an invasion. <laughs> oh, yeah, invasion. Caravan. And people like, are like, yeah, oh, all these mothers and and five year olds and and people just trying to get a job or <laughs> they're they're invading. And and one of the things that that's interesting is that when the Bracero program was still going on, which you kind of you kind of alluded to when you said pre nineteen sixties. Yeah, yeah. Um, a lot of immigrant workers lived in Mexico, even though they worked in the U.S. because they just simply crossed border by day and returned by night. What happens when you have an open border system is that. There, 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 there intends to, there, there tends to be a cycle. There are cycles of, of, of exchange that happens across the border where people are incentivized to stay on the border. But what happens if you close the border, right? America, uh, conservatives now tend to think that our, our borders are too porous. In reality, based on the numbers, America has a closed border policy, a 90 to 95% closed border policy. Uh, and Alex Watson has a Yeah, you have people, yeah, getting in to America is like backed up four or five, what is it, just a huge amount of time in order to... Wait for 100 years, the official time. Yeah, yeah, which is one of the funny things is because the the anti-immigrant people are always like, I'm not against immigration, I'm against uh, illegal immigration. I'm like, no, you're against immigration because you're not wanting to change the laws that would allow them to come here legally. You're just against immigrants. The the, the whole distinct, I mean, the the, the legal, illegal immigration... (laughs) completely nonsensical distinction because um, legal is arbitrary. If today America decided to make only Christian immigrants legal and all other uh, immigrants illegal, you can say the exact same thing. Yeah, I'm exactly. Not, I'm, not, I'm not against immigration. I'm against illegal immigration. Well, it turns out that the illegal category excludes every single person but Christian immigrants. That kind of, I mean, that, that kind of makes it a moot point. Like, it's just, it's just, it, it, it means nothing in its sense. It, it just, it, yeah, yeah, exactly. Just, right. And so, and, and also like with that is what, what happens when you close the border is that immigrants, illegal immigrants that cross, immigrants that now become illegal all of a sudden and now they're considered an invasion, right? When, 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 when they continue to seek work because laws cannot correct market realities, right? And they still want to avoid enforcement and avoid capture. What ends up happening is they travel deeper into the States. And that's when yeah. you find immigrants deep in America. Well, we go immigrants deep in America because that's the best way to avoid capture, right? These are just incentives that kind of lay themselves out. And this is just what happens. These are the unintended consequence, uh, consequences of U.S. immigration policy. And the government continues to have to, to, have, to have the hubris to ignore these different various policy points and refuse to recognize that what they're essentially doing it's very much akin to how the Soviet Union managed the economy. They're essentially planning the labor market. This is a socialistic planning of the labor market. By, I mean, look at the long lines. Look at the long queues of visa. <laughs> I'd like that to see. Uh... <laughs> green Soviet Union policies, right? But conservatives, a lot of conservatives just don't want to recognize it. And they try to justify that by saying, well, it goes beyond the economic norm. It's like, well, so what if it does? All the other social scientific literature shows that they are not a harm. And so, yeah, one of the that I've studied much more deep, um, much on a much deeper level, right? Uh, and it's, I think it's one of the issues that is a lot easier to argue for. I just, it's very, very hard for me to see a conservative argument, right? Against. Exactly, and it's because there's a good portion of the left and the right that are for this, specific, specifically the libertarian right. But you know, there's a good, decent amount of people on the right anyway. One of the other talking point or responses or critiques, I don't know what you'd call it, uh, that I hear from people on the right is responding to how whenever a, a undocumented, illegal or whatever, however you'd call it, uh, immigrant gets mistreated or thrown into prison or, or uh, beat up, separated from their kids, etc. The response is, well, they're, they're breaking the law. They think that that's a good excuse. I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Stealing a pair of baseball cards from the store is also a breaking the law should they be separated from their children and thrown in prison or something it's it's like they think that once they've defined it as breaking the law it's automatically any punishment is is there for fine they, there's no concept of uh puni- the crime the punishment should 
be proportional to the crime. It just disappears for them because a brown person is has committed a crime, and so any punishment is now therefore acceptable. Right, and 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 the bottom line with that is just that, <clears throat> that just because someone breaks the law isn't enough. It, it's just simply not enough because it depends on what the law is. And I do think that I, I do think that a lot of these laws are unjust. And I do think absolutely because something being legal doesn't mean that that thing is moral, and something being illegal sure. doesn't. Or I, I prefer actually ethical. Moral tends to have a uh, a right wing religious fanatic uh, connotation to it. The morality right. clauses and whatnot. But anyway, um, we we obviously know this. The three the three fifths compromises in the Constitution that was not ethical or moral. Right. I- <laughs> I mean, slavery was once legal and it's not ethical. And one may say, oh, well, that's just a false equivalence between slavery and illegal immigration. But obviously, we're not equating that illegal immigration is literally like slavery. Yeah, we're not. But we're saying the that, analogy isn't made that isn't made to compare that, that. Sometimes some of these laws um, are worth breaking. And for me personally, I don't see illegal immigration as that big of a problem. I think that's an over exaggerated problem. And I think the best way to solve illegal immigration is to legalize all immigration. Yeah. Right? And I mean, we haven't even talked about like the drug cartels. Exactly. Exactly. If we leak, like, that's the whole thing. Uh, again, on the right, they don't want to legalize marijuana or, you know, any kind of even low level drug. And it's one of those things, like I was mentioning earlier, people are going to do it whether you like it or not. May as well legalize it so that it doesn't have to be underground, so that it doesn't have to be some rando who doesn't know what he's doing mixing this stuff in his backyard and and giving it. And I wouldn't go as far as some libertarians might and say we should uh, completely legalize all drugs. I'm still, like, there's a reason that certain drugs are over-the-counter and some are, some are not. Now, again, I'm not saying all of them are properly classified. Some may have, have had a lobbyist, and so they're over-the-counter when they shouldn't or vice versa. But my point is, is that the average person isn't qualified to know the side effects of a lot of, let's just stick with prescription medication. And so the stuff that's not over the counter should remain that way. That said, I don't think, or I think we should focus on punishing the companies who get caught selling prescription drugs without a prescription, rather than punishing the people caught with the prescription drugs. And yeah, and, and, and that is distantly analogous to the problem, right? Is that the reason why the drug cartels are even alive in the first place is legal drugs. I mean, it, I mean, not not sorry. It, illegal it drugs. <laughs> it is because heroin. It is because meth. It's because marijuana are all considered illegal. And really, I would and I would bet my money on this. I really would. If you were to completely decriminalize every single drug, and I mean every single drug. I mean every single one, right? Um, so you mean decriminalize as opposed to uh, legalize? Yeah, um, decriminalize every single drug. <laughs> And I mean, I'm not even afraid to compromise on this. Sure, legalize heroin, legalize meth, and regulate the safety content of that. But don't regulate it out of existence and essentially push it back to the underground market again, right? But if you were to if you were to make all these drugs no longer illegal and not be a crime, I guarantee you the cartels will disappear. But illegal immigration would still exist because bottom line is there are still market realities that need to be corrected with an extra right. more input of labor. I mean, that's just the need of the country. America can still continues to need more immigrants, right? And like, I just, I'm pretty sure I've encountered like 90% of all the arguments from the conservative side against uh, Im- more immigration, not even open borders, more immigration. And a lot of them are like false dichotomies. Yeah, they're almost all made up after the fact. They know that they want to justify the belief that they held beforehand. And so right. just all the, all, all the excuses they make are, transparently fallacious and and cherry-picking data and all that sort of stuff. And some have said, like, well, we still have poor people in America, and we still have veterans on the streets. And it's like, that's a false economy. Take care of people on the streets and we'll let them more immigrants. What's so hard about that? All right. And so, yeah, I, I, I do think it's one of the where I just think it's really hard for me to just see any argument that can knock down argument against open borders. The chase, the cumulative chase for open borders, to me, is quite overwhelming. Right, right. Absolutely. I agree. Well, this is a fascinating conversation. I'm glad we got to cross so many topics, even uh, yeah. even briefly grazing some topics that weren't, weren't even like necessarily in the in the list of ones that we had to, that we planned on. Yeah. So I, I actually like yeah. kind of 
enriching the subject matter as far as that goes, but yeah, hopefully we can do another uh, discussion sometime soon, maybe talk about another few areas. <laughs> I'd, I'd like to cl talk about climate change since that's what I've done significant amounts of research on. Bye, bye. <laughs>